lot of people would say your greatest asset is time. It's like the difference between being able to read and write. That's the very first step, because if you don't master these internal triggers, they become your master. That's emotional growth that you will take with you into every single one of your interactions. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is the source of 90% of our distractions. But here's the thing. You can have all the time in the world, but if you don't know how to prioritize, then you can end up wasting all that time. Hello and welcome. Dave here and absolutely delighted to have you. Thanks for joining me today because Steve isn't joining. Um, he's done the last two episodes. I was away in Belgium and Amsterdam with my wife and kids and we had a great time. So it's my turn today. So thank you. I'm honoured to be here with you. Um, really one of the best things about this podcast is that the incredible guests which we have and the, the valuable ap applications I get from my own life. Like there's so many nuggets of wisdom and gold which I get to apply to my own life. And we thought it'd be really good to kind of pick some of our favorite episodes. We've done a, an episode on, a kind of mashup episodes on sex and on uh, community. And we did kind of four health hacks in the last one. And this one today is really on productivity, which sounds crazy and self-improvement. I've picked different people and we've kind of put a mashup together. Well, Sarah's done, helped a lot with this. She's been incredible. And really it's about, there's so many ways that we can improve, but these were three guests which really impacted me. So I guess to start things off, I wanted to ask you a question. If I was to ask you to imagine up a school for adults and young adults, what topics would you like covered? Okay, so that's the question. Okay, so I'm going to go first. And if it was my school, there's many things I would love to teach, of course. But if I was limited to just three, the first one would 100% be about relational literacy. So it's about relationships. I think relationships are so central to every aspect of life. And the more fluent we are in terms of communication and the subtle aspect of this, the better our life will really be because ultimately our life is a product of relationships. So that'd be number one. Number two would be about how to be indistractable, how to actually be able to focus. I think that's so, so, so important. And finally, number three, how to prioritize and understand what tasks or activities actually serve you and are more important than others and how to get into a flow state. A flow state is ultimately the state that each of us are looking to get into every day. It's where we lose ourselves in the moment and actually get absorbed completely in what we are doing. And ultimately, if you think about it, it's what a baby or a young child is doing when it's playing. You can see that it, it really just loses itself to what it's doing. That is my curriculum, really, for this podcast episode. Uh, I wonder where your topic the same probably not but hey it's uh, i guess i'm the host today so let's get straight into it and take this game a little further in this week's mashup episode i want to welcome you to dave school for adults and young adults today's subjects are all focused on self-improvement and no better way to start with relational literacy with the wonderful dr melanie joy and you know when you really think about this world as you pointed out you know you think about some of the most pressing problems in our own personal lives but also in the world you know uh, war poverty um racism uh sexism patriarch climate change you know patriarch yeah climate change um animal exploitation domestic violence like could go on and on all of these problems, if you think about it, they really do share a common denominator. And the common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, between individuals, between humans and other animals, um, between humans and the, the planet. And, you know, even when we're relating to ourselves, we're always relating to ourselves, you know, through our self-talk, through our life choices that we make. Um, so this common denominator of the most, many of the most pressing problems in our world and our lives is relational dysfunction. And the good news is that what this means is that 
a common solution to these problems is relational literacy or building relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. Relational literacy is not the solution to all the world's problems, but it's an integral part of any solution. And you know, when you think about it, most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use, and yet we don't get a single formal lesson in how to be healthy relational beings. Okay, you might be wondering, who's this Dr. Melanie Joy and why should I listen to her? Well, anyway, she's a Harvard-educated psychologist specializing in relationships, communication, and social change. She's the author of six books. She's the eighth recipient of the Institute of Janeology's Ahimsa Award, which has previously been given to Nelson Mandela and the Dalai Lama. And her work's been covered on so many different media outlets, including the BBC, ABC, Australia, NPR, and New York Times. We recorded this episode with her last year, and I remember once it was finished, there was the four of us. There was Steve, Sarah, Shawnee, and myself, and we all just literally were like, wow, wow. It really was. It was super, super impactful. Um, so she was so much more than what we expected. And I love the last point from the excerpt we just shared. We learn so many things in school, but we don't learn the fundamental on how to relate to others in the world and to each other and how to be a functioning, pleasant and reasonable humans. So what is it to relate? What is relating? When we are relating anytime we're interacting, right? So if you, and every interaction is a relational dynamic, right? You're relating to me right now. You know, every time you communicate, you relate. Every time you make a choice uh, that's going to impact your future self, you know, what are you going to eat for dinner tonight? How healthy is that going to be? Or whatever. You're relating. So that's, that's what it is to relate. And so, you know, relationships are really just a series of interactions, um, if you think about it. So how we relate is how we interact. And um, all of the principles for building healthy relationships, for building relational literacy, they rest on this one key formula. And I'll share that formula with you. And this informs, you know, it, it's similar in nonviolent communication, but not exactly. And the formula is this, a healthy um, it's the formula for healthy relating. So a healthy interaction or a healthy relationship, is one in which we practice integrity, we honor dignity, and this leads to a sense of mutual connection and security. I love the formula here. She goes further to break it down so you can understand it better. Because a lot of times we think about relationships and we have this sort of sense it's a good relationship, it's not a good relationship, or we leave a communication and we just feel smaller and we're not really sure why. But when you really think about the formula, you know, and you can break it down, it makes it a lot easier to, to feel a sense of empowerment and agency around each of our interactions. Um, so practicing integrity simply means um, practicing the core moral values of compassion or caring and justice or fairness. Like wow. integrity is the integration of these core values and our behaviors. To simplify it even more, when we practice integrity, we basically treat somebody else or ourselves um, the way that we would want to be treated if we were Very in good. their position. We treat them with respect. I like that. That's a nice way. So it's, it's almost like the simple principle of treat others as you want to be treated. And basically, that's the basically, yes. When we honor dignity, what this means is that we, your sense of dignity is your sense of inherent or intrinsic worth. When you feel a sense of dignity, that means you, you realize that you are no less worthy than anyone else on this planet of being treated with respect. 
So when we honor somebody's dignity, we don't perceive them, perceive them as less than in any way. And we treat them accordingly. Dignity is such a key thing because now in our kind of hierarchical society, our judgment-based, our extremely comparative modern-day culture, dignity is something that's so missing so often. The, totally. the word I just wrote down there was power-hungry people because there seems to be so much competition, as you said, and dignity Comparison. doesn't Comparison. And this, that, that dignity is missing so often. Totally. And what happens is that we might believe, like we, well, let me back up. When we practice integrity and honor dignity, this helps us to feel more connected with one another and more secure in that interaction or in that relationship, right? So, and, and of course the formula, like most things in life, it's not either or it exists on a spectrum. It's not like an interaction is healthy or unhealthy or a relationship is healthy or unhealthy. It's more or less healthy. So I talk about interactions or relationships as actually being more or less relational or non-relational. So a non-relational interaction is one in which we violate integrity and harm dignity. And this leads us to feel disconnected and insecure or less secure. So an example of this might be a relationship where there's no trust, so there's no moral integrity, and therefore there's no respect, so I don't feel secure to be vulnerable and have an open conversation and properly connect with someone. So the whole conversation is based on small talk. So it's non-relatable. Yeah, it's non-relational. I would call it non-relational, right? A non-relational dynamic or a non-relational interaction. I mean, just think about like in your own own experience, right? Um, Or anybody listening, just think about your own experience. If you think about a relationship in your life that you would consider a really good relationship, chances are you trust that that other person is going to treat you with respect. They're going to see you as being fundamentally worthy. You know, you have a right to exist and be treated with respect on this planet, and you probably feel connected to them and secure in their presence. Think about a relationship, you know, with somebody that you think is not a great relationship. Maybe it's somebody you've never even met before, like an online troll who's posting comments on your YouTube channel or something. Chances are you recognize they're violating their integrity. They're not practicing compassion and justice toward you. They're harming your dignity. They're not perceiving you as having fundamental worth as a being, being treated with respect. And you'd feel disconnected from them and insecure in their presence. And we can apply this formula to everything. That's the nice thing about it. Everything to our communication, to how we relate to other animals, to how we relate to the environment, to how we relate to ourselves. So when you're in an interaction and you don't feel connected or secure, you can pause and ask yourself, you know, do I feel like I'm I'm being treated with respect here? Or, you know, ask yourself if you're treating the other person with respect in the in the interaction. This formula is a skill that we can all learn according to Melanie. Absolutely, it is not rocket science and that's part of the beauty of it, right? We can all learn, it's it's very practical. I mean, it's not simple, right? Because you've got to be willing to do the work. You've got to be willing to self-reflect and you've got to be willing to, you know, be vulnerable and take risks and, you know, all the things that you guys are probably already aware of. Um, But nevertheless, you could do it at your own pace. And when you build relational literacy in one area of your life, it's going to spill out into other areas of your life. Because when you learn how, for example, to be a self-observer, you know, to start building your own awareness, when you learn how to be more tuned into and responsive to the needs of somebody else in your life, those are skills And that's emotional growth that you will take with you into every single one of your interactions. 
Relational literacy permeates into all areas of life. Melanie goes further by looking at the bigger picture and how it can help. Often when we think about the big problems in the world, we can really feel overwhelmed. Like we have to sort of take them on one at a time. We've got to fix climate change. We've got to fix animal exploitation. We've got patriarchy over here. But when we recognize that like they really do share a common denominator and the more each one of us can become more relationally mature, you know, the more we contribute to the greater good and just the better our lives get. It's an amazing message. If we can all as individuals change how to relate to each other and to the world, we can move towards solving these bigger issues. Melanie continues with. That it's, it's really important that we, we do work on ourselves because we bring ourselves to everything that we do. And it's also important that we work on the world at the same time, because it can be very easy to become self-focused or sort of focus on your own sort of like nuclear unit and think, okay, this is where the work needs to be. And that's obviously important place to do the work. And it's also important, in my opinion, for people who feel compelled particularly to bring your energy and your skills to the bigger picture and the greater good and get involved and help on a, a more meta level, help organizations, you know, that are doing the work to really try to you know, halt climate change and animal exploitation and, and change the world on a more meta level. So how do we apply this? You might be wondering, where, how the heck do I actually apply this to my real life? Well, Melanie gives us some concrete examples and breaks down what relational literacy actually looks like. Most of it, or, or all of it, I would say, centers on the formula and also on this idea of becoming process-centered or process-focused. Every interaction, let's use communication as an example because it's easier to, to understand this way. Every communication has two parts to it. It has the content, that's what we're communicating about. And then there's the process and that's how we're communicating. We tend to all over-focus on the content. I just wanna get the words right. I just wanna get my answer out there the way I need to get it out there. But the process matters much more. If you think about um, like a conversation that you had, let's say six months ago, or maybe a year ago, it's possible that you actually forgot that content entirely. Somebody you talked to at a party or something, but you probably remember how you felt in that conversation. The process determines how you feel. When your process is healthy, you can communicate about anything without arguing. And when your process is not healthy, you can't communicate about anything without arguing. You probably know people who have so much in common and yet always seem to find a reason to butt heads and argue with each other. Um, so if we're more process focused, we create a way of communicating that helps us to be more connected and feel more secure in that communication. Can you actually relate to this? Can you think back to a situation and really just remember the feeling of being agitated or upset? opposed to what was being said to you i certainly can it's amazing how once you can find that point of safety ease with someone you can literally talk about anything all those challenging tough conversations because trust you trust and understand that they actually will listen you'll be heard and both you will be respected the nonverbal communication is is nearly more important than the content melanie continues further it's the nonverbal communication and it's it's the it's the attitude, it's the goal, right? When your process is healthy, your goal, your objective for the communication 
the interaction, the communication is um, to its mutual understanding, right? The only reason we communicate anyway is because we're not mind readers, even though a lot of us think we are and act like we are. Um, we're not mind readers. So we need to communicate in order to help the other person understand our thoughts and our feelings and our needs and to, for us to understand their thoughts and feelings and needs. That, that's why we communicate. When our process is healthy, our goal is mutual understanding. When it's not healthy, our goal can be a lot of things. For example, our goal can be to be right, which means to make the other person wrong, or to win, which means to make the other person lose, or to assert our power and our dominance, like there are so many things. And, and so when we learn how to have a, a healthy process, and of course a healthy process reflects integrity and honors dignity. Um, then this helps us to feel more secure and connected. And when our goal is mutual understanding, we can keep coming back to this point. So if you're in a communication and you start to feel stressed and, you know, something is off here, you can pause and, and ask yourself, you know, what's your agenda? Are you feeling like you have to be right in this in this communication? Um, do you feel like the other person is somehow shaming you? When you don't honor somebody's dignity, you're essentially shaming them. And that's you know, that, that's so central to a dysfunctional process where people disconnect and stop listening to each other. Now, effective communication is built on a lot more than just a healthy process, but this is the foundation of it. And the beauty of effective communication and relational literacy, as I said before, is if you want to learn it, you can. I mean, anybody who really is committed can, can learn it. And it's a game changer. When you build relational literacy, your world transforms in such profound ways and your impact on the world transforms as well. It's, it's like the difference between being able to read and write. Melanie goes further to explain how most of us don't know how to be relationally literate, even though she attributes it as being as important as being able to read and write. Once you can identify it, put a label on it, such as identifying the importance of process versus content, we can correct ourselves much easier. When we recognize shaming behaviors, you know, for what they are and how they come out and get expressed, we're in a much better position to protect ourselves from having our own dignity harmed or feeling that our dignity is harmed and to protect others from us doing this to them. Because as you said, we're like, we're on autopilot, you know, we're just, we're communicating so unconsciously because we, we were communicating the way we've always been communicating. We've never been taught how important it is to pause and really to pause as we're communicating, to stop and take a breath and try to observe ourselves and notice, you know, what am I feeling right now in this communication? Do I notice I'm starting to feel resistant? I'm starting to feel tense. I'm starting to feel smaller. I'm starting to feel dominant. You know, how does this person seem like they might be feeling? Have I paused in this communication and actually said, how are you? Am I thinking, how are you? You know, most of us are so on autopilot that we just keep reproducing the problems that we inherited when we were a lot younger, but we can change that. Melania talks about the importance of being present. You can feel it when somebody is, um, when you're communicating with somebody who's really present to you, who's really witnessing you and um, not judging you, and this is key, an effective listener is somebody who is not in a place of judgment. They're listening to you and doing their best to be present to what you're saying and to stay empathically connected with you as long as that feels safe for them to do. It's not always 
appropriate to stay empathically connected with somebody. You need to feel like so. So is is, ju- is judging almost undermining someone's dignity? Like if I'm standing here, sitting here, and I'm hearing you talk, and I'm judging you, I'm kind of almost thinking of myself as better than you. So I'm kind of undermining your dignity in a weird way. You're absolutely, you're so right. Like so spot on. And and this is really, I think, very important to appreciate the, the two emotions that are probably the most disconnecting of emotions. They're two sides of what I call the non-relational coin, shame and contempt. And, you know, when we are relating in a way that is violating the formula, essentially, whether that's listening with judgment or communicating with judgment, you know, when we are relating in a way that is in violation of the formula, we are um, probably relating to somebody else in a way that shames them or relating to ourselves in a way that shames us. And let me unpack this a little bit so it's more clear. So shame is not the same thing as guilt. Like we often like conflate these terms, but they're not the same. Yeah, I, I get shame mixed up all the time. My conflate. wife says that's not that shame. That was a great word, conflate. <laughs> My wife regularly says that that's not shame. And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't really know what shame is there. So <laughs> delighted you brought it up. Well, I mean, but we use them interchangeably. Um, it sh- so guilt is how you feel about a behavior. You know, when you feel guilty, the narrative in your mind is I did something bad. Guilt is actually an important and adaptive emotion to feel. If we don't feel guilt, we don't feel remorse and we're not likely to remedy the problem we may have caused. Caused. So guilt is how you feel about a behavior. Shame is how you feel about yourself. When you feel guilty, you think I did something bad. When you feel shame, you think I am bad. So shame is basically the feeling of being less than, and more specifically, it's the feeling of being less worthy than, less worthy than somebody else of being treated with respect, of being treated with the, you know, integrity. Shame is like a deeper version of guilt in a way, because it's a deeper version. You've personalized it. You've taken what was once an action and you're putting it into character. Well, it can be. I mean, this is the problem with guilt, you know, because guilt in our culture, which is so dysfunctional and so organized around shame. I mean, shame is so central to the way that we have all learned to relate and get our own sense of power. You know, we shame others all the time to prop ourselves up. We shame ourselves all the time when we feel like we haven't done something the way that we should have. It's so um, it's so epidemic that as soon as people feel guilty, they often automatically turn it to shame. But shame is not adaptive like guilt. Shame is very problematic. When we feel shame, we typically, you know, do not feel a sense of agency or inspiration to rectify a problem. We wrap ourselves in the emotional armor we need to, to protect ourselves from further shame. You know, we withdraw or attack in self-defense. Shame is incredibly, incredibly um, disruptive to our sense of self. And most of us will do anything to avoid feeling shame. And there's just been tons of studies on the problems, um, the, the, the problematic or the consequences of causing somebody else or ourselves to feel ashamed. So when our process is not healthy, it often ends up shaming because we treat, we harm others' dignity and we're communicating with them that they are not worthy, that they are less worthy. When we shame somebody else, whether it's subtle or not so subtle, we significantly increase the chances that they shut down to anything else we have to say, feel defensive, lash back at us or withdraw to get away from us. 
And so it's very important for us to be aware of what a shaming behavior, you know, or a communication looks like so we can protect ourselves and we can also, you know, protect others from, from this experience. I do believe that if, and, and research suggests this too, you know, if we, as, as, you know, globally, if the collective level of shame were not so high, we would be a lot less likely to treat each other the way that we do. You know, we've learned to manage our shame through one-upping people. We've learned to feel better about ourselves by putting others down and by wielding, you know, power over them, essentially. The breakdown of what it is to feel guilty versus shame is powerful. It was hugely impactful for me. If we knew or really thought about the effect it has on someone to make them feel shame and how this feeling has a negative effect on their responses, would we do it? Probably not. Melanie continues with the opposite of shame, contempt. When you feel contempt, that's a red flag that you've placed yourself in a position of moral superiority. Contempt is basically judgment plus um, prejudice, they say. Judgment plus anger, depending Ooh, on how contempt, you... Contempt and, and is, is it built on shame? Like, is contempt kind of like... Contempt's the other side. It's the expressor of shame. Is yes, it, it's say, the say action of shame. I think I'm better than you, so I'm going to talk down to you and you're going to feel lower about yourself. Or if I feel shame, I'll kind of like... Maybe the action bit of it is to one-up on him. You can right? flip into contempt, right? So yeah. both, both contempt and shame, they're two sides of a coin. So when you feel contempt, you've placed yourself in a position of superiority. You're looking down on somebody else. Um, or yourself. Like a lot of us shame ourselves. Um, and when you feel shame, somebody else has probably one up to you. And the thing about these emotions is that they only exist if we actually believe in a myth. They only exist if we believe in the widespread myth, what I refer to as the hierarchy of moral worth. If we believe in this idea that some individuals are more worthy of moral consideration or being treated with respect than others. If we don't believe in this, we don't feel shame and we don't feel guilt because, uh, or, and we don't feel contempt because we recognize that there is no hierarchy, that we all have the same intrinsic worth. I'm not better than you and you are not better than me. We all shit and piss at the end of the day. But it's such, excuse my vulgarity right there, um, but it's such an important lesson and reminder to us all. We're so easy to judge and place superiority on ourselves over others, especially when our society is built that way. Melanie goes deeper on hierarchy. And when you think about the hierarchy of moral worth, I mean, it really is at the foundation of all forms of oppression and exploitation. You know, we could never harm another or others if we didn't believe that there was this hierarchy that, that some individuals are not worthy of being treated with compassion or with respect. So how do we move beyond this hierarchy? In this case, um, understanding content is also really, really important. Like understanding, you know, having some understanding of the, the way the hierarchy of moral worth gets manifested. It, because it's so easy for us to buy into it, right? So you, for as an example, let me back up and get a little bit more meta before I give you this example. So when you look at systems of oppression, like patriarchy, right? Like racism, like um, uh, uh, classism, um, carnism, you know, animal exploitation, all of these, all of these are expressions of the, the, the same type of thinking. Each of the, this, each set of victims of these forms of oppression will always have unique experiences, of course. 
but the systems themselves are structurally similar and the mentality that drives these systems is the same. It's this non-relational mentality that's built on a hierarchy of moral worth that certain groups are more worthy than other groups, if you think about it. And therefore certain individuals are more worthy than, than individuals um, within these groups. But this hierarchy of moral worth, it gets played out in other ways as well, or this belief, it gets played out in other ways as well. You can have, for example, somebody who is you know, passionate about social justice and transforming all of these various isms, and yet they may nevertheless berate people who don't agree with them and use the same kind of language toward these people, you know, online or wherever that they're trying to end being used in the world because they've bought into this belief that, okay, because you're part of the problem, because you have harmed individuals or whatever, whatever, um, you do not deserve to be treated with respect. And so we keep recreating this problematic mentality, or we will keep recreating it That's if we don't recognize so, it. Uh, like uh, we see that all the time. Like we've, uh, I, I find this so hypocritic and I find it really amusing at this stage, but it used to hurt us at the start back, like we've been eating a vegan diet for 20 years and our business was, you know, a plant-based business and you can't like veganism is an ideal. There's no perfect within it. And I find we get the most stick from other people who are vegans that they're so tough and so angry. And it's like, well, at the root of this is meant to be compassion, but it, it seems like, you know, in reality, we like, we don't, people don't, it's not, it's vegan people are the meanest to us than non-vegan people. <laughs> we finish with Melanie on history, inherited trauma, and how this hierarchical system we live in today is really just a new phenomenon and how it's been exasperated. Well, it's certainly been exacerbated by, you know, social structures and economies that kind of create this sense of like, you know, in this radical individualism that we experience today for sure. Um, but... Uh, yeah, in answer to your to to what you were asking before, you know, when we look at this history that we have that's just so brutal, I mean, how could we have any hope? And I think one thing we can look at is we can look at the way that, you know, trauma affects us. We all have we've inherited so much trauma. You know, we we've emerged from generation after generation of like wars and abuse and just even just the emotional violence like the day-to-day -day emotional violence that we all experience you turn on your computer open your phone and we're just like explosions of emotional violence and people abusing each other and you know and sometimes this abuse is like not only tolerated but but celebrated right so and we also know that you know we we can people can and do develop a tremendous amount of resilience and emotional um, uh, wherewithal and maturity when they emerge from trauma. And so if we imagine that, you know, we recognize that the, the history of humanity is very, very short. We're very young as a species. Um, we do have the capacity, you know, with the right tools to learn and to grow. And the question is, you know, what can I, for me anyway, the question is what, what can I do today? How can I today help to be my better self and contribute to a better world for, for everyone? And this is why, you know, the conversations that you guys have are, are actually so important and you cover such a, a wide range of subjects. And it's also why I believe so strongly in the, the promise of relational literacy, because it's not just about how do we heal our relationships with the people in our families? How do we create better workplaces? But it's also, you know, how do we create better relationships with other animals? You know, how can we practice treating other 
other animals, non-human animals with respect through our minute to minute choices and bringing relational literacy to that. The same thing for the environment. Boom. What a way to end. Okay, hands up who wants to learn more about relational literacy. I know I certainly do. I find it so valuable to every aspect of life. Okay, so now that we've had our first lesson and have all become great communicators, excellent listeners, non-shamers, having adopted the formula in which we practice integrity, honor diggerty, dignity, which leads to a sense of mutual respect and security. It is a wonderful formula. I know it sounds like a mouthful. Practice integrity, honor, dignity, which leads to a sense of mutual respect and security. Okay, so what's next in today's class of self-improvement, you may be wondering? How can we top this? Well, a topic which really took my really took my interest in so many aspects is about focus so a couple of questions before we kick it off do you find it easy to get distracted probably yes i know i certainly do do you procrastinate yes i absolutely do do you have long lists of things to achieve but struggle with ticking them off absolutely do you spend enough time with family and friends and is the time spent with them uninterrupted and fully alert i'm pretty good at spending lots of time with family and friends is it uninterrupted? No, definitely not. Am I fully alert? Mm, depends on the moment. Do you argue a lot with your partner, family members, housemates, or friends on chores that need to be done? No, generally not, except when I'm trying to get the kids to empty the dishwasher or clear the table. Um, do you find you get creative blocks? Absolutely, of course. Okay, with all this and more, it's all about to be answered for you with the excellent brain that is the wonderful Nir Eyal. Very inspiring and really he's incredible in terms of productivity. He's the author of numbers of a number of best-selling novels. Okay, so let's kick things off with Nir's answer on distraction. Why are we so easily distracted and struggle with focus? I think it's more than anything problems of abundance. Uh, and these are very good problems to have. Uh, that in fact, distraction is nothing new. Uh, Plato talked about the problem of akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest 2,500 years ago. So our technologies did not invent distraction. Uh, what's, what we have today is that we have such an abundance of options that we need to face the price of progress. The price of progress is we have to learn some new ways to live with this stuff. That uh, when you live in an age of information being at your fingertips. Uh, you can speak, you know, look, we're, we're talking right now over thousands of miles for free <laughs> on these amazing video phone devices. I mean, this is, this is Buck Rogers type stuff. If you would have told me this stuff would exist uh, when I was in my 40s, if you would have told me that when I was in my teens, I would have said, you're crazy. Uh, and yet here we are. And so the price of all this progress is that we have to learn how to deal with it. Just like uh, the, the, the fact that we live in an age of abundance when it comes to calories. Right. So there's a, I think there's an information diet as well. So when it comes to our physical uh, diet, right, when it comes to our, the calories that we ingest, uh, you know, this is the first time in human history that more people die from diseases of excess, obesity, diabetes, than of starvation. That's never happened in the past 200,000 years of human history. And so what do we have to do? We have to adapt and we have to adopt. And this is what we've always done as human beings. Uh, every new technology requires us to adapt our behaviors and adopt new technologies that uh, do away with the bad aspect of the last generation of technology. And so what you see now, the past few years, we've had this obesity epidemic that this disease of abundance in the industrialized world uh, has meant that now people don't starve <laughs> generally. In fact, that we have the opposite problem, people overeat. So what does that mean? We have to learn how to deal with an age of abundance. And so we see various uh, uh, you know, ways of adjusting our behavior. The crisis of, of obesity certainly isn't over. 
does seem to be taking a turn, by the way. Many people don't know that actually obesity crisis is getting better as people learn how to uh, eat healthfully. And I think we're going to see the same thing happening with our information diets, that right now we are gorging on the abundance of information between social media and YouTube and Google and our phones. There's so much abundance of, of things to do with our time and attention that if we're not careful, we're going to be in a situation of information obesity where we, uh, we use what is an otherwise great thing to excess. And that's a big problem because the world is really bifurcating into two types of people, people who allow their time and attention to be controlled and manipulated by others and people who stand up and say, nope, I am indistractable. I control my time. I control my attention. I choose my life. So what kind of person are you, distracted or focused? Probably a combination of both, I imagine. I honestly adore this analogy that we're gorging on too much information. Near is all about time management and scheduling to avoid us gorging or overeating all this information and becoming distracted. But myself and Steve absolutely love spontaneity. We love meeting people and just saying yes in the moment to an adventure. So naturally, I wanted to ask that by becoming more schedule focused, surely that would ruin spontaneity. The research just, just doesn't support it, that the vast majority of people, their problem is not that they're not spontaneous enough. The problem is that they can't focus on the hard stuff long enough to finish what they want to do with their time and attention in their life. And so because of the fear of, well, I don't want to be too rigid. I want to be spontaneous. I want to see where life takes me. They don't build the skill that is absolutely essential to get anything great done. They can't focus, especially in this day and age when distraction is in your pocket anytime you want it. And so most people don't struggle with not being spontaneous enough. <laughs> most people struggling with actually finishing what they know they want to do with their time and attention. And look, this is the wrong episode to listen to if your life is perfect, okay? If you exercise when you say you will, if you eat right, if you do what you say you're going to do at work, if you are on top of your sales calls, if you're spending quality time with your family every night like you say you will, if you're finishing everything on your to-do list, wrong episode, right? Uh, go, go, <laughs> I think there's not else. many of those I think you've, you've ticked everyone off there. <laughs> exactly. That unless you're a retiree or a child, you need to plan your time. Why? Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say this again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. And so most people have these huge blocks of white space on their calendar because they want to be spontaneous. They want to leave time to do, you know, spontaneous fun things and be ready for adventure. But the adventure never happens because they're on Facebook or checking email or watching the goddamn news for more time, worrying about somebody's problems thousands of miles away, as opposed to living the life we deserve right now. So I'm not saying you need to plan down every 15 minutes or, or be productive with your time every second of the day. No, I want you to plan to turn your values into time. This is a critical lesson. Turn your values into time. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So if you want to spend time playing video games or going on social media or listening to a podcast or praying or meditating, I don't care what you do with your time. Whatever it is you do with your time, I want you to do it. But I want you to do it with intent. Don't do it because of some ping, ding, or ring on your phone. Do it because that's what you plan to do with your time in advance, including, get this, planned spontaneity. That sounds like an oxymoron. How can you plan spontaneity? Here's how. On my calendar, every week, 
I have time with my daughter. Now it's a big swath of time. I spend three hours on my calendar that I, I plan for spontaneity with my daughter. Why do I do that? I don't know what I'm going to do with her, right? Maybe we're going to go get some ice cream. Maybe we'll go to a museum. Maybe we'll go to the park. We're not sure what we're going to do. We're going to be spontaneous. But the reason I have to plan for it is because if I don't plan for it, it's not going to happen, right? Because I know what I know what I will not be doing for that time I have planned. I will not be on my phone. I will not be checking social media. I will not be looking at emails. I will be 100% with my daughter because it's on my calendar. That's what I said I would do in advance with intent. So you can actually plan time for that creative time. What we find is that high performers plan that time, right? When it comes, especially with creative endeavors, truly professional creatives, they don't wait for the muse to strike. No, they put their butt in the seat and they do the writing. They go to their studio and they do the painting. They do whatever it is that they said they're going to do in advance when they say they're going to do it. As opposed to low performers, they say, oh, I'm not inspired or I don't feel like it right now. And so this is the number one reason people don't accomplish their goals. They don't feel like it, right? That is the number one reason. I don't feel like exercising right now. I don't feel like working on that writing project. I don't feel like doing that hard work right now. It's a feeling. Okay, plan spontaneity, you might be going, that just sounds like a juxtaposition. It sounds ironic in a sense, but it makes sense. It really does. You know, without boundaries, creativity cannot necessarily flourish. So how do we become indistractable? Is learning how to master your internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. That's the very first step, because if you don't master these internal triggers, they become your master. What I discovered in my five years of research into this topic is that the number one source of distraction, it's not the pings and dings. That's what we tend to blame. We tend to blame the notifications and the emails and all the stuff outside of ourselves, the kids, the boss. That's only 10% of the reason we get distracted. 10% studies have found. The other 90% of the time, 90% is not because of external triggers. It's because of these internal triggers. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is the source of 90% of our distractions. One of the biggest takeaways I had in writing this book is that time management requires pain management. Time management requires pain management. I would also add weight management requires pain management. Money management requires pain management. All human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. So in fact, distraction is driven, 90% of distraction is simply driven by this uncomfortable sensation that we seek to escape. And so that's the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering these internal triggers so they don't become our masters. Nir continues on the concept of the desire to escape discomfort with. All human behavior, in fact, every human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, right? We used to think it's about carrots and sticks. Sigmund Freud said this, Jeremy Bentham said this, it's called the pleasure principle. Mm. It's not true that everything we do is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but in fact, neurologically speaking, it's all about the desire to escape discomfort. Everything, everything you do, even the desire to feel good is itself psychologically destabilizing. Think about it, wanting, craving, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts. That is exactly true. And so the way the brain gets us to act is not because something feels good, it's because of the memory of it feeling good in the past. It felt good. That's what drives us to act. It's that desire, that lusting, that itself is psychologically destabilizing. So this is called the homeostatic response. Uh, physically, it's, it's common sense. If you think about when you go outside, 
and it's cold. Well, the brain says, this is uncomfortable. You should put on a coat. If you go back inside, now you start feeling hot again. Well, your brain says, that doesn't feel good. Take off your jacket. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs. And so you eat. And if you eat too much, oh, now you feel stuffed, you stop eating. So this makes perfect common sense when, it, when we speak physiologically. Of course, the same is true psychologically. When you're feeling lonely, check social media. When you're uncertain, before you ask your brain if you know the answer, you Google it. If you are feeling bored, uh, lots of solutions to boredom, right? We've got stock prices, sports scores, the news, all kinds of things take us away from this uncomfortable sensation that we don't want to feel. So all human behaviors comes from a desire to escape discomfort, which is why distraction begins from within, that time management is truly pain management. Time management is truly pain management. I, I think that's absolutely, I think that's just such a, such a great way of looking at things. So let's now identify what is distraction by first identifying the opposite of distraction. Yeah, so let, let's start with what is distraction. It's one of these words that uh, I thought I knew, and then I, when I looked into it, I realized I didn't really understand the definition. So if you wanna know if you really get what distraction is, ask yourself what is the opposite of distraction? What is the opposite? The opposite of distraction, Traction. most people will tell you, well, you read ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my homework. <laughs> You're giving away my punchline. <laughs> Most people will say it's focus. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that, you, uh, that move you closer to your values, that help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite is, of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further from your goals, further from your intentions, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is really important because it gets to this point of intentionality. Look, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So we need to stop vilifying medicalizing and moralizing these wonderful technologies, right? There's nothing wrong with going on social media or reading the news or listening to a podcast or doing whatever you want to do with your time. It's not the technology, people. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've researched it backwards and forwards. Uh, it is not the technology. If you want to spend time on these things, do it, but do it with intent. Put it on your calendar. I have time in my calendar to go on social media. I have time in my calendar to watch Netflix. It's in my schedule. So what I've done is turned an otherwise distraction into traction by planning time for it, by having it in my schedule. So now we have traction, we have distraction. Now we have to think about those triggers, those external triggers and internal triggers. So this gives us this framework for how to live our life, how to become indistractable. Starting with the first step is mastering the internal triggers that you need tools in your toolkit ready to go so that whenever you don't feel like doing something, which is the underlying reason why we don't accomplish our goals, it's always just a feeling, right? You will know what to do when you feel that discomfort, right? You'll say, okay, this is just another internal trigger. I got it. It's boredom. It's loneliness. It's fear. It's uncertainty. It's uh, uh, anxiety. What am I going to do about that? Am I going to try and escape it with the news, with booze, with Facebook, with football? Am I going to escape it? Or am I going to lean into it with traction rather than distraction. So high performers, what they do, they don't have a ton of willpower, right? They don't have a lot of self-control, it turns out. What they have are tools at their disposal 
that they will use to lean into that discomfort. It gives them something to prove, for example. If you look at amazing athletes, if you look at uh, uh, best-selling authors, if you look at uh, you know, super productive artists of all sorts, they're, they're using that discomfort, right? You'll hear these stories of, of opposition, of adversity, where they have something to prove. Whereas people who are low performers try and escape that discomfort. As soon as something is hard, as soon as it's not comfortable, as soon as it doesn't make me happy, as soon as I don't wanna, they escape it as opposed to leaning into it. So that's the first step, master the internal triggers. So mastering the internal triggers is our first step to becoming indistractable. We discuss methods you can use in order to lean into this comfort and master these internal triggers, which we'll absolutely cover up in the final lesson of the day a little later in this episode. But for now, let's continue with near and the second step to becoming indistractable. This stuff is not your fault. Distraction is not your fault. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent the nightly news. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Because who the hell is going to do something about it for you? Is the news media going to tell you, hey, you've read enough news. Go have a life. Are they going to tell you that? Of course not. <laughs> is Netflix going to say, you've watched enough shows. Please go go, go do something with yourself. No, they're not. That, that's not the point of these products. We want these products. That's what makes them good. We want them to entertain us. So we can't expect the products to fix this for us. We can't expect the genius politicians to figure it out for us. If you hold your breath, you're going to suffocate. We can do something about it. It's actually not that hard. So step number one is mastering the internal triggers. That's the most important step. Having these tools to say, okay, why am, I, why am I going away from what I said I was going to do? Why am I getting distracted? What's that feeling I'm trying to escape? And then I, I give you some, some very practical tools that anyone can use. The second big strategy to becoming indistractable is making time for traction. This goes back to that scheduling that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. As I mentioned, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have a big open calendar in your day, what did you get distracted from? You didn't say what you were going to do with your time, so you can't say you got distracted. You have to plan ahead how you want to spend your time. And again, I'm not here to tell you how you spend your time. You can play video games all day if that's what you want to do with your time and your attention. That's great as long as it's done in, with intent. So this is where we have to ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And so I help people subdivide their life into these three life domains of you, right? If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of others, you can't make the world better. How would the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves? Do you want time to read? Do you want time to exercise? Do you have a bedtime, right? How many of us tell our kids, we're all parents here, how many of us have bedtimes for our kids? And we say, you have to get to bed. It's very important. You need a bedtime. But do we have a bedtime? <laughs> we all know how important sleep is. Is it on your schedule? Very, very important. Second life domain is your relationships. You know, We know that the industrialized world is suffering from a loneliness epidemic right now. And loneliness is as detrimental to your health as smoking and obesity, studies find. Fif so we 15, have got 15 to cigarettes. Time. 15 cigarettes, I think it is yeah. today, isn't it? So it's huge. It's, it's a real problem. And part of the reason this is happening is that the, the regular social bonds we had with our friends, and this, this is partially because the world became more secular, is that we don't have the church group. We don't have the, the regular Friday synagogue. We don't have those, those uh, uh, regular interactions with the people in our community that we need to, to stay happy and healthy. We've got to bring that time back. It has to be on our schedules. Don't just give your family and friends scraps of leftover put it on your schedule. And then your work domain. So work can be divided into two, two uh, kinds of work. Low performers tend to spend their entire day doing what's called reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings. And they spend almost no time in reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. 
strategizing, planning, creative work, thinking, for God's sakes, requires us to do so without distraction. So high performers put at least some time in their day for that reflective work, and they keep it sacred. They protect it because it's incredibly important. If you don't do it, you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So that's step number two is making time for traction. So I think the opposite of distraction is actually traction, what you're actually focused on and what you actually want to spend your time on. So I think this is as important, actually understanding what you want to make traction for, where you want to spend your time and your energy. So let's continue with step number three. Step number three is hacking back the external triggers. This is where we talk about all the pings, dings, and rings, as well as all the other things that we don't consider like your kids, right? Your kids can be a huge distraction. We love them to death, but they can be very distracting, especially if many of us are working from home. So what do we do about that? And finally, for number four. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. This is where we put in a firewall against distraction, the last line of defense to make sure that uh, we, we don't go off track. So it's really those four big strategies. Distraction happens, even to Nier who wrote the book on it. The main thing, according to Nier, is to understand why you got distracted so you can do something about it. To summarize, every distraction has three causes, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. So as long as we plan ahead, we can prevent being distracted in some capacities. So where do weekends come into this, you might be wondering, or is it just for weekdays? So for example, on the weekends, my wife and I take a, a four hour walk in the morning together. Uh, that's on my schedule because, uh, you know, we've, we've been married now for over 20 years and we used to have these arguments about like, Hey, when are we going to spend time together? And it became such a pain to organize. Well, you know, when, when can we find time? And maybe we'll have a date night once in a while. And it was so special. And this is my life partner, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's a funny story. We, so we met in college in an economics class. And we learned in an economics class about what's called the residual benefactor. The residual benefactor is someone who, or sorry, beneficiary, residual beneficiary is the chump that gets whatever's left over when a company goes out of business, right? So the first debt holders get whatever, you know, whatever money's there, then equity, then the residual beneficiary, whatever's left over, that's what they get. And I remember a few years into our marriage, my wife turned to me and said, you know, Nir, you have turned me into the residual beneficiary. Right? I get whatever's left over scraps of time uh, after your work and after your friends and after the TV and after all the other stuff, then you make, you know, you give me the scraps of time. And she was absolutely right. And so we don't do that anymore. Uh, now we have time in our schedule. Uh, and we also do this process, which was life-changing called schedule syncing. So uh, for years, we had this argument around why I wasn't pulling my weight in the household, right? That my wife would say, you know, Nia, don't you see our daughter needs to be fed? Or don't you see that the garbage needs to be taken out? Why aren't you doing this stuff? And I would say, honey, 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 listen, I'm happy to do it. Just tell me what needs to happen. I'll do it. Just tell me if you need me to take it out, or, you know, take out the trash or whatever it was. And I was thinking that I was so kind of me, right? How nice to, 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 to get, you tell her I'll do anything that needs to be done. And what I didn't realize that I was giving her yet another job. Now she was my babysitter, right? Now she had to tell me what to do. And so we would have these arguments until we started schedule syncing. What is a schedule sync? You sit down, we do this every Sunday night. We sit down on Sunday nights and we look at each other's time box calendars, right? The, when you make a time box calendar, as opposed to, by the way, a to-do list, which we can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Now we sit down with our time box calendars and we know exactly who's gonna do what, right? It takes us 15 minutes a week, 15 minutes. So, okay, you need to drive our daughter here. And on Wednesday, we're going to do dinner. And then we, we'd look over that counter 15 minutes. 
we never have those arguments anymore. Because one of my values is to be in an equitable marriage. And this, the research shows even in 2022, even when both, uh, both people work outside the home, women take on a disproportionate share of household admin duties, right? This will be no surprise to pretty much all the married women listening to me right now. They all know what I'm talking about. And it's up to us guys to step up and do this schedule sync to, uh, to, to understand what our responsibilities are and put them in the calendar. That way there's no disagreements. Now, this same technique is incredibly helpful in the workplace. Part of the reason that people feel so burned out at work is that there's very little transparency between employees and employers around how people are spending their time. So this technique of, of what I call schedule syncing is a life-changing practice to do with your boss. If you can sit down with your boss once a week, say Monday morning, hey boss, can, can, I spare, can you spare me 15 minutes? You show them your time box calendar and then you say, hey boss, look, this, this is my week ahead. Here's how I'm gonna spend the time working for you. Here's, you know, see, here's time for email. Here's time for this meeting. Here's time for this project. Here it is on my calendar. Here's how I'm gonna spend my time this week. Now you see this other piece of paper? Here's the list of things that I wrote down that you asked me to do that I'm having trouble putting in the schedule. I'm having trouble finding the, how we should prioritize. Can you help me with that prioritization? And you will find that your boss will worship the ground you walk on. Because let, let me tell you, I've started three companies. Every boss out there is wondering what the heck their employees are doing all day. They all want to know, but they don't want to ask because they don't want to micromanage you. So what you need to do is to manage up by showing your boss what you plan to do for the week, right? When you show them, here's how I'm planning ahead, and you ask them to help you reprioritize, they're always gonna say, oh, you know what, that meeting, that's actually not really necessary, but that thing that you put on the piece of paper really should be in your calendar. Can you swap that out? That process of schedule syncing is a, is a game changer, hugely helpful. I genuinely love this idea of schedule syncing, I really do. My wife is the queen of time management. She is gold standard Olympic level. Um, so after this, after this episode, I genuinely mean her did schedule syncing on a Sunday evening and it really, really did help. And it was great. Um, I just haven't really done it the last few weeks, but I'd highly recommend trying it. It's definitely helpful. And it happens less in a schedule sense for us, but we communicate a lot better in terms of our own schedules. Okay. I've always been one who would write long to do lists in my notes on my phone for near to do lists do not work. He's completely against them which came as a total surprise to me and it probably will do to you. This is why. It's not that writing things down on a piece of paper is a bad idea. That's a very good idea. Getting stuff out of your brain and putting it into an app or putting it on a piece of paper, great idea. It's running your life on a to-do list. That's a problem. If you wake up in the morning and you ask yourself, oh, what am I going to do with my time today? And you look at your to-do list rather than your schedule, you've shot yourself in the foot. Big mistake. Why? There's a few reasons. Number one, to-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more to a to-do list. It can be a mile long, right? And so what happens when we have a mile long to-do list is that we work real hard all day. We're trying to check these boxes off, which by the way, another big problem with the to-do list is that what do people do when they have a to-do list? Do they do the hard and important work? No, they do the easy and urgent stuff because it feels so good to check those boxes, right? So we don't prioritize properly because of a to-do list. That's point number one. Point number two is when we have a to-do list that has no constraints, what happens when we come home at the end of the day and we haven't checked all those things we promised ourselves we were going to do? We didn't check all those boxes. We're well, missing day that after day, week after week, month after month, if you see that day in and day out, that begins to take a toll on your psyche. You said you were going to do all this stuff and you didn't. Loser. 
which is why people start believing over time that they're somehow broken. Well, there's nothing broken with you. It's that you're using a broken technique, all right? The third reason that to-do lists are so bad for you, or I should say running your life on a to-do list is so bad for you, is because very few people who use to-do lists to measure their productivity have actually felt what leisure actually feels like. I didn't. I used to be a a to-do list devotee, and I was constantly ruled by the tyranny of the to-do list, meaning I I would want to do something fun, right? I want to be with my daughter. I want to come home from work, and I want to play a a board game or uh, watch Netflix or do something I want to do. But in the back of my mind is that to-do list and all the things that I should be doing right now. And so even when I want to have fun, I'm constantly thinking like that, that I'm avoiding work. That's terrible because you never actually get to relax. Whereas a person who use a t- uses a time-boxed calendar, right, as, as opposed to just checking off cute little boxes, the person who measures themselves, not by how many boxes they ticked off, but on this metric, which is, did I do what I said I was going to do? for as long as I said I would without distraction. That's the only thing you need to measure yourself by. Let me say that again. Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? No matter what that task is, notice I didn't say finish, okay? I didn't say finish. Because it turns out that what the fourth big problem with to-do lists is that there's no feedback mechanism. And this is why people are so bad at predicting how long things will take them. Studies find that on average, people think a task will take them only a third as long as it actually does. Tends to take people three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. Why? Because you don't know how long something takes you. Here's what happens with a to-do list. There's a big task that someone needs to do. They work on it for five minutes. It's hard. Then they check email because you know they want a little break. And then after 20 minutes of email, they'll get back to the project, maybe another few minutes, they'll work on it. And then it's hard again. They don't know how to manage those internal triggers and they get distracted again. And there's no way to track how long the thing took you as opposed to an indistractable person says, okay, I'm going to work on this task for 30 minutes. And it doesn't matter if I finish, I'm just going to work on it without distraction. That person can now begin to understand how long the task is taking them. They say, okay, I worked on it for 30 minutes and here's how much progress I made. I got about 10% through the task. Great. Well, that means I need to put in 10 more 30-minute blocks and I'll finish it. A to-do list can't do that for you. So time box calendars and the people who simply measure themselves by did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction, the kicker is those people, even though they're not tracking whether they finished, it's not about the checking of a finished task, by simply tracking whether they worked on a task without distraction, they actually finish more. They get more done than the to-do list devotees. Okay, we finished this episode with Nir on how to best check emails and run meetings. We also did an episode with the entrepreneur Cameron Herald, who literally wrote the book on how to best navigate a meeting. So if you want to hear more on those topics, do check out those episodes. However, moving on with today's class for self-improvement or how to become an even more ultimate human. Now that we're relationally literate and time management pros, where do we go from here, you might be wondering. Okay, you can be the best communicator in the world, but what does that mean if you don't have the ability to self-reflect? You can be the best time manager in the world, but what is the benefit if you are focusing your time on the wrong things? We've been meditating for years and I really feel the benefits from it. I genuinely do. You know, I find this morning I spent 20 minutes meditating. I focus on my breath. I focus on the sensations of my body. I find I calm down. I reach places of calm and my mind goes quieter. It genuinely does. And as a result, I can carry that throughout the day. And when I find there is 
problems or things which might provoke me or agitate me, I can just breathe and go, hey, it's okay, it's okay. And I find I'm better at life pressing my buttons. My buttons maybe are getting a little smaller. So meditation has always been a serious interest for us. So as part of lesson number three, the final lesson of today's class, it's with the meditation master, Light Watkins, on prioritization and getting into the flow state. You know, our, mo our greatest asset, a lot of people would say your greatest asset is time. But here's the thing, you can have all the time in the world, but if you don't know how to prioritize, then you can end up wasting all that time. And so my teacher's teacher would say, your greatest asset is your ability to discriminate or to discern or to prioritize and to know at any moment what the most important thing is, what the second most important thing is like that down the line. And when you are on a deadline, the most important thing may not be working on the project. It may be resting. It may be going and sitting and closing your eyes for 10 or 15 minutes and just tuning in. It may be uh, making sure you're eating something that is nourishing you so that you can then um, use all of that to get into that flow state, which is what we all ultimately want. I love that point. I genuinely did. We could have the best schedules to complete the task we want, but if we didn't sleep well that night or you had an argument with a loved one, the best thing to do in that time might not be the task at hand, but to sleep or resolve an issue so that when you do come to the task, you can give it your full focus and get into that flow state. Now you might ask, what is it to be in that flow state? The way I, I think about flow state is having invested enough time, energy, effort, understanding into something to the point where you don't have to think about it. It's not something you have to think about while you're doing it. In, instead, you're in the process of it, right? Because when you haven't invested the time and energy and effort, then it's like you guys, you know, with your handstands, like you don't have to think about how to do a handstand. You can just pop up in a handstand, right? And you may be thinking about something completely unrelated. Whereas someone who's never, who hasn't put the kind of time and energy into training yourself to be able to do that, all they're thinking about is don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, you know, and, and because they're thinking about don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, guess what happens? They fall. <laughs> and it is not that they're doing it wrong. It's just that that's where you start, right? You start there and then you, you, you keep diligently working and training and practicing and, and ultimately getting into the process of it. And once you get into the process of it, you're no longer worried about falling because you've already fallen so many times, you know how to fall. And it's this weird thing that happens is once you know how to fall, you don't fall as much because then you're, your, your attention goes elsewhere to the more nuanced, subtle aspects of that practice. And that can apply to anything, it can apply to comedy, it can apply to giving keynotes, it can apply to raising kids, you know, a new mother is not going to be able to be as efficient as someone who's already had two or three kids and they already know how to multitask and do all the things. And so when the, uh, when the newest baby is starting to cry, they're not going to freak out like the new mother with their first child, freaking out, overreacting, you know, making the situation worse, but that's where it starts. So, um, so I just, when I'm doing something new, like I'm learning Spanish right now, cause I'm in Mexico and it's hard, man. It's hard because it, it uses a different part of my brain. Um, but I understand this is the process. I'm going to sound stupid. I'm going to be clumsy. I'm going to sound like Tarzan in the, in the early days. But then at some point, it's going to click. 
I'm not going to be thinking about masculine, feminine, which word comes before the other word. You know, it's just all going to start to get into that flow state. And I'm just going to start speaking while thinking about something completely unrelated. And, 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 but I have to put in the reps to get to that point. So flow state is earned. It's not something that you can intellectualize. You have to you have to act, you have to execute, you have to, you have to almost start off outcome oriented and in order to get to that point of being process oriented. Nothing comes easily in life that is worthwhile. I genuinely believe that. Everything takes practice. Just like Dr. Melanie says about becoming relationally literate, we have to keep practicing it and coming back to the formula until it comes naturally to us. Moving on in the same way as Nir described, our reluctance to lean into the discomfort which results in us distracting ourselves. Light takes it in a slightly different direction. He describes it as confirmational bias. Basically, we justify anything we feel like doing over what we should be doing. For Nir, it's black and white. He recognises that each of us are distractible. You just need to recognise the triggers and then stop it. Whilst for light, it's not that simple. He discusses the tools you can use in order to help you recognize that you're avoiding the necessary discomfort and favoring what's comfortable. Because one of the things that we are very good at doing as humans is, is using confirmation bias to, to justify pretty much whatever we feel like doing in those moments. You know, I feel like eating a dozen donuts and I deserve it because I'm using self-care and blah, blah, blah. And I need a sign. I saw there's a commercial about donuts. That's a sign. You know, <laughs> we're very good at that. We're not so great at being able to pierce through that and see our blind spots and be honest with ourselves. And so um, sometimes we need outside help for those kinds of things. Sometimes therapy is really good for that. Sometimes um, mentorship is good for that. And so meditation can be a great tool for, helping us to see, oh, I need to go and do a sobriety program. This is, you know, I'm now drinking a bottle of wine a day and uh, that's not normal. You know, I justified it up until this point, but I, I know that it's not, now I, I'm realizing it's not where I ultimately want to be. So, you know, what are the options? So if meditation can get you to a place where you're asking yourself, what are the options? And then you're able to execute on some of those options. That's ultimately what it's useful for. It's not useful for just sitting around getting into a blank mind, um, you know, 10 or 15 minutes a day. The question is, what are you going to do with that, with that, all that stillness when you come out of the meditation? And how are you going to use it to be of service to the, to the greater world? Finally, we end up here with light on the concept of happiness. How mistakenly we apply happiness to certain goals, objects or achievements. And how meditation or mindfulness can be an aid to see the root from the trees. Um, we may start off being more outcome oriented in our approach to life and thinking about where this is leading and what's going to happen at the end point. And the, and the reason we do that is because we think that happiness is going to come on the yonder side of the achievement. And so once you have enough experiences where you achieve pretty remarkable things and you realize it's not making me any happier, there's a temporary wave of joy that comes from knowing that I did something that was hard, right? But then once that dissipates, I'm back into my sort of baseline level of happiness and I'm not really any more happy than I was before. And so we'd have to run the experiment again. Okay, well maybe the next achievement and then maybe the next achievement. And then eventually we get to the point where we realize that 
the achievement is not where where it is and that's where they have that sort of midlife crisis you know where you 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 arrive in in your 40s or, or, or older and you, you realize that i've achieved all the things and i still don't feel what i thought i was supposed to feel inside and so where meditation and mindfulness the reason why we're still talking about them thousands and thousands and thousands of years after they were first on the scene um is because it's one of the one of the only things that gets us to that happiness that we all ultimately want to have, which evidently is found inside. And the only way to access it, you can't pay somebody to give it to you. You can't have surgery to access it. You have to literally sit down and just do the opposite of what we normally are doing, which is, which is being active. And we have to just get into a least excited state of awareness. And the beautiful thing about that is that once we tap into that least excited state of awareness, we are able to feel that sense of contentedness and feel that sense of, of, of um, fulfillment. But, but it doesn't last for very long. It may only be there for a split second, the first few times. And the rest of the time, we're just monkey mind and sitting there thinking about all the things we have to do. And so the more we keep investing in that space, dropping into that state of, of being as opposed to doing, the more we tap into that. And then eventually, we can actually export it from the eyes closed state into the eyes open state into activity and that's where we'll start to find that we become more process oriented just inherently as opposed to outcome oriented so the the one of the points that i make in my meditation workshops um, that i've been doing for over 15 years now is that being able to access that state of awareness in the meditation is really a beginner's experience. It's nothing to write home about. <laughs> the master experience is can you take that state that you have with your eyes closed and your least excited state of awareness, can you take that into activity? Can you have that with your eyes open? And the only way to do that is the same way, you know, you guys can do your handstands. The only way somebody can, can do pull-ups, you have to train yourself. You have to Put the time and you have to invest the energy into cultivating it and then but the great thing about it is that once you cultivate it it doesn't go anywhere it's with you all the time so it's like a it's like a, a compounding asset that's just getting stronger and uh, more and more prevalent in your life and and it reinforces all of the reasons why you should continue investing the time and space and energy into cultivating it because it it changes your perceptual acuity and it makes you just grateful for no reason. It makes you happy for no reason. And then the questions start to change away from is, is taking on this new project going to make me happier to is this new project going to be a relevant outlet for the happiness that I have inside? So two completely different ways of looking at it. Right. Will you say that again? One, that's a beautiful. That's a beautiful perspective. Is taking on this new project, or is dating this person, or is moving to this new house, or is buying this new car, or is gaining this new knowledge going to make me happy? That's how most people sort of approach or think about 
um, new possibilities? Is it going to make me happy versus is it going to be a relevant or useful outlet for the happiness that I have? In other words, I've accumulated so much happiness inside. Now I'm looking for outlets for the happiness. That's and so awesome. I, I want to get into the relationship because I have happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to take on this project because I have creativity and happiness to share, not to get happy. I want to move into this particular house because I want to use it as a way to bring people together because I want to share happiness, not to get happy. So I it's love a that. different way of approaching life that is, that is happening from the inside out as opposed to hoping that happiness comes from the outside in. Such a powerful message. We can get caught up in achieving things or having goals, ticking boxes that we can forget to enjoy the process, to actually enjoy the journey. And furthermore, we can forget to reflect on the things, who we spend our time with, things we purchase, activities we do, where we spend our time, so much so that we can mistake things that don't serve us for happiness. Meditation and mindfulness for us, for both Steve and me, is such a powerful tool and in so many ways is the perfect asset to being able to be a relationally literate by slowing down and acknowledging our own behavior when we communicate with people and the world at large. And as I already touched on, meditation and mindfulness can even help you schedule your time more accurately as it can help you to focus on the things that actually are important and going to fulfill you as opposed to what your ego might tell you. So we come to the end of this week's lesson or class or episode, really, as I like to call it. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something from it. I know I certainly did. It's been a great reminder for me just um, putting this together. A big shout out to Sarah Fawcett, who uh, was a massive help in putting this all together. So thank you, Sarah. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please send us an email. You know, give us any feedback which you feel like sharing. The email address is podcast at thehappypairs.ie. And if you really did enjoy this and want to share it on Instagram, if you share it to Instagram stories, we'll reshare it and try to get it out and amplify it to more people. Um, and yeah, I found these hugely impactful for me, particularly the relationship. I just think that's so core to everything. I think mindfulness and meditation in that aspect and being able to focus, I really think these are such core basic principles in terms of living a fulfilled, happy life in the age that we live in. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Emil. Thanks for your attention. I know you could be doing loads of other things, but I'm really grateful for it. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you or hopefully meeting you in the future. Send loads of love. Thanks. Bye. Bye, 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 bye.